Um, I read a recent survey uh, of GPs just uh, last week, and uh, the survey uh, recorded feedback from all these GPs that were interviewed all over the country uh, about the. And one of the, the main findings of this survey was the rise in what was called the worried well. The worried well. Uh, some of the GPs are, are even nodding at me right now. Uh, the worried well. Uh, there's been a huge rise in people. Uh, when they feel a little bit under the weather, uh, going on to going online, typing in their symptoms uh, into uh, websites like uh, NHS Direct, uh, and diagnosing themselves basically with with everything from food allergies to brain tumours. Uh, <laughs> I, I kid you not. Uh, about a year ago, I was feeling a little bit under the weather, feeling I le- not too much energy, was feeling a little bit nauseous, typed in these symptoms to uh, a website, uh, and it told me I was probably pregnant, and I should, uh, I should see my GP. So just a warning, but, but some of you no doubt at some point uh, have typed your symptoms uh, in online and tried to diagnose yourselves. Uh, the phenomenon is, is called cyberchondria, cyberchondria, uh, and it's on the rise uh, due to lengthening waiting, waiting lists for GPs, uh, due to, and then on the flip side, due to the easy access everywhere uh, that we have to Dr. Google. Uh, it can be dangerous. I don't know if you've ever done it at any point, typed your symptoms in, uh, and maybe began to be scared that actually here are some, con- some diseases that actually this could be the beginning of. Um, for, for example, uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor, and it seems to me, reading between the lines, doctors, medics are just as big a hypochondriacs, if not more, than the rest of us. Uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor, I remember having a conversation that he found out about one particular disease, uh, and it freaked him out so much he was a bit paranoid about having it. Um, it it's called necrotizing fasciitis, uh, and it starts with just little rash. Uh, on, your, on your hands or feet, uh, but uh, that little disease attacks your flesh and eats it, and you could be dead between 12 and 24 hours. Uh, I'm not that happy that he shared that disease with me, to be honest, uh, but uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, if you've been on any of these websites, that actually that, that's quite true. Lots of these major diseases all start with very mild symptoms. They start with symptoms such as mild headache, um, irritating cough, um, stiffness in your joints, uh, and you think I've got I've got that. Oh no! Therefore, I must have this terrible, terrible disease that could potentially kill me within 24 hours. Um, of course, if you go to see a real doctor, a real GP, they're a little less indulging of your symptoms. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, if you go to see a GP, if you say you have a cough, they're not really interested in your cough unless you're coughing up blood. Uh, and even then, they'll say, can I, can I see the blood? Uh, and if you can't produce the blood, then they'll say, look, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Uh, Here, take uh, a paracetamol uh, and uh, come back to me if there's any more uh, issues. Well, look, uh, I don't know if you're a hypochondriac. I suspect in in some, in a a crowd this size, there's some of you who are hypochondriacs, uh, who are always worried about your health, uh, sensitive to your your aches and pains, uh, and worried. Well, it turns out John is writing this letter 
to spiritual hypochondriacs, to spiritual hypochondriacs. Those who are worried about their spiritual health, um, those who are concerned that all is not well with them. Um, And again, if you uh, have been following with us uh, in this book, you will know that this book is written then to reassure these worried well Christians, these hypochondriac, spiritual hypochondriac Christians. Uh, And John, like a good doctor, sits them down, looks at their symptoms and sees, look, look, you're convinced of your own guilt and shame and sin. That's good. That's a good sign. Uh, You are convinced that uh, Jesus is a historical man who's also God, who died for you, and you're clinging to him for forgiveness. Look, you're fine. You're, you're well. You're well. You're the real McCoy. You are genuine Christians. But it was, what has made matters worse for these worried well Christians, uh, if you've been here with us, you will know that we discovered, uh, reading between the lines in this letter, that a big bunch of people have actually just got up and left their church. Uh, and they're ringing up their friends uh, and saying, oh, look, your church is so, it's so out of date. It's so fundamentalist. It's so medieval. Uh, we have now deeper insight. We have direct revelation. We've had a direct revelation from God. We have a more broader perspective. We have a more sophisticated faith. We're, we're more spiritual now. We have deeper insight and more enjoyable spiritual experiences. Uh, come on, you should, you should join us. You should join us. And some of these levers have clearly been in contact with the remainers uh, and caused them to be worried. Uh, and so John then writes to them uh, like a good doctor. So we saw verse 19, some have left. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they uh, would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. A group have left. John now has to come to these further worried, well Christians. And he asks them some follow-up questions as a doctor, some diagnostic questions. And we looked at those uh, last time. He will ask them very simply, uh, first, do you hate other Christians? Do you hate other Christians? No, you, you don't. You don't. You try to love them even when you find them irritating. Look, that's a, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. That's a sign that you have real spiritual life. That's a sign that you're a real Christian. The next one, do you just ignore or reject the commands of Jesus if they're inconvenient to you? Is that what you do? Or do you try all imperfectly, of course, imperfectly, but do you endeavor to obey Jesus and please him, what you know he's called you to do. Look, if you're doing both of those things, be reassured you're the real McCoy. You are genuine believers. You can know that you belong to God. You, can, you should be sure and confident that he loves you. You should be sure and confident that you're really forgiven. And so John writes then to reassure these spiritual uh, hypochondriacs. 
But then we come to this passage, and in this passage, John says two things. Number one, it's tricky, it's tricky, so please be patient with me, and I'm sure I'll have more questions at the end than maybe you even had at the beginning, uh, but we'll try and work through these verses. Uh, verses eight, chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. And in this little section, John says, Look, be alert. Be alert. There are threats to your spiritual health out there. You need to be alert. There are real threats to your spiritual health out there. But then be reassured. Be reassured. You are inoculated against those threats. So there are real threats to your spiritual health out there. Be alert. Then be assured you are inoculated against those spiritual threats. So let's go through those verses. Number number one, let's take the first thing that John says. Be alert. There are threats out there. Antichrists are among you. Verse 18, dear children. This is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even though many Antichrists have come This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, I don't know what you think when you read a verse like that. A verse talking about antichrists, talking about the last hour. Does that not sound like, uh, is there not a little alarm that goes off in your head saying, danger, danger, entering the territory of religious maniacs uh, who stand on street corners and shout about the end of the world? Um, I don't know what you think of. When you hear the word antichrist, again, I suspect in a crowd this size, some of you at some point have been influenced by Hollywood. Some of you have watched those Omen movies of the little boy, Damien, with a 666 tattoo or birthmark on his head, um, who is a disaster, follows him uh, wherever he goes. Um, Actually, the Bible itself doesn't say an awful lot about antichrist. Uh, the phrase, the, the term is just used here and in 2 John. And that's it. Uh, Paul gives us a little bit more detail, I think, about the same figure uh, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he talks about a future figure, a future person called the man of lawlessness. And again, we're, we're given sketchy details at best. Uh, there is a future figure coming who will deceive many people and he will focus opposition against Jesus and his people. A figure like that is coming in the future. Uh, and that's going to happen. He's going to be revealed. When he's revealed at the very end of the age, uh, it's going to be the Lord Jesus who returns to defeat him, we're told. But that's all we're told. And as you can imagine, uh, the imagination of Christian writers has gone into overdrive. Gallons of ink have been spilt over the centuries trying to identify who this man of lawlessness, who this antichrist is. There have been all sorts of candidates, the Emperor Nero, uh, Hitler, uh, the Pope on various occasions has been identified as the antichrist. Uh, We're we're just not given very many details. Uh, There is a figure coming, the New Testament says, who will deceive many people and will focus opposition to the Lord Jesus. That's not the focus of what John is talking about here. He gives us no details about that person at all. In fact, he wants to stress that while that figure is coming in the future, 
while that figure, that person is coming in the future. You need to be aware that actually deception and opposition to Jesus is not restricted to the future. There are many deceivers, many deniers of Jesus, people who are anti-Jesus, anti-Christ in that sense, who are already here. That's John's point. Many antichrists have come. There are many deceivers uh, and deniers uh, of Jesus who are already here. And John says that is typical of the last hour. Now, what does he mean by that phrase, the last hour? Now, John is not saying, he's not saying, he never intended to say that Jesus is coming back in the next 59 or so minutes, right? He was wrong in a spectacular way, if that's what he was saying. But that's clearly not what he's saying. He is using this language of the last hour, uh, which is unique to John, Um, But he's using it in the same way the other New Testament writers often refer to the last days, the last days. Um, And the consistent uh, testimony, the consistent message of the New Testament is that with the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension at that time, we entered the last days. The last days is then the whole period between Jesus' first coming and his final coming. So just look at these couple of references. You see what uh, I mean. Uh, This is Peter speaking in Acts 2, uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, and his fellow disciples uh, supernaturally were able to speak all the other languages uh, of the people who were visiting uh, the city. Uh, And Peter stands up in front of the crowd, and he says, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. They're not just babbling. Uh, It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God, will, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all peoples. In other words, those last days have already started right now with the coming of the spirit. We are in the last days. Or the writer of the Hebrews says uh, something similar, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. The New Testament writers are telling us, when they use this term, the last days, they use it to speak of the whole period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And John is here saying something similar. He's referring to this last great chapter of human history that we are now in. Okay, We are now in the last days. And what was typical of the last days? Well, John is here echoing the teaching of Jesus. Jesus in passages like uh, Matthew 24 or in Mark 13. Jesus said what will be typical of the last days is that there will be many deceivers who will come. Many who will deny the Lord Jesus. uh, Those who are anti-Jesus, anti-Christ in that way. Now, this sounds very harsh language to to bandy around uh, in the middle of a church split, to refer to people who disagree with you as antichrists. That sounds a bit harsh uh, and a bit melodramatic, does it not? However, John does show us that actually, and explain that this is actually a very good description of these leavers. Just glance down at verse 22. Who is the liar? 
It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. These levers were denying that Jesus was the divine rescuing ruler. They were denying that Jesus is the Christ. Now we know from church history that about the time John was writing, there was a teaching that began to be introduced and taught in some of the churches in the first century and into the second century, which effectively said, here's a very crude summary, please forgive me, Uh, we don't have time to go into the details, but effectively there was a teaching about Jesus which, which said that Jesus was a good man and at his baptism Uh, A spirit from God descended upon him uh, and gave him all sorts of wonderful insight and abilities that he was able to do miracles and teach with great insight. Uh, But then just before he died, that spirit departed from him and he died as an ordinary man. That was the teaching of the day. And that seems to be what John has in his crosshairs. He is effectively saying anyone who denies that Jesus is a a fully historical man who is also the eternal son of God, fully God and fully man, is an anti-Christ, is anti-Jesus in that sense. And John is saying, effectively, if you look back at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, John is saying that is not true. That is not true. Take it from someone who heard him, who saw him, who touched him. who Someone, in other words, who knows what he's talking about when it comes to Jesus. That is not true. He is the historical man who was also God. Now, of course, antichrists are alive and well in Belfast today. If we work with that definition. Uh, you only have to go across the road uh, to Belmont Park. Uh, walk down the street a little bit and you'll come to the Kingdom Hall where the Jehovah's Witnesses meet. And if you know anything about the Jehovah's Witnesses, you will know that they deny that Jesus is divine. He is the first creature that God made, a glorious creature, of course, but he was made by God. He is not equal with God, not part of a trinity in any meaningful way. John would say, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be rude or offensive, but in the strict sense that you are antichrists. Of course, perhaps most famously of all, and we were just mentioned the Muslim world with regards to our first uh, Monday prayer meeting. Um, in Islam, there is a denial that Jesus is the Christ, the historical man who was also fully God. They would say he is a prophet. But he certainly didn't die for your sin in any way. He's not some saving king in any way. In fact, in a a passage in the Quran, in uh, Surah 4, 157, it's very clear that they say that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He didn't really die. Uh, He swapped places with somebody else who died for him, and he ran off. Doesn't even sound a very nice man, if that's your understanding of who Jesus is. John would say, I'm sorry, and I don't mean to be rude, but you are antichrists in that sense. But the shock of this passage, I think, that we're meant to see, while antichrists are alive and well out in the world, uh, the shock of this passage is that antichrists will rise up from within the church. 
within the church. Verse 19, they went out from us. The Antichrist were fellow members of our local church who ended up being Antichrists. Um, John is saying we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when there are deceivers and deniers who come along even within our church. And so John, when he reads, would have read, for example, a survey that was released in 2012 of the Church of England, he wouldn't have been surprised. Uh, so a, church, a survey was released uh, of a clergy in the Church of England in 2012, uh, and it was revealed that one quarter of the clergy in the Church of England. Now, I say this having some great friends in the Church of England. I was trained by, in a Church of England college. I love my brothers and sisters there. Nevertheless, these statistics are true. Um, a quarter of the clergy in the Church of England do not believe that Jesus died for sinners on the cross. A third of the clergy interviewed up and down the country, do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically and do not believe in the virgin birth. John would say, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. But why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Surely we disagree on all sorts of things all the time. But John would say this is, a, this is absolutely crucial. This is absolutely crucial. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Who is the liar? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. That's a shocking thing for John to say. John is saying, if you deny that Jesus is the historical man who was also God, who died for you, if you deny that, there is no way to God except through Jesus. If you deny who Jesus is and what he's done for you, you do not know God in any meaningful way. Now, I think we struggle with that language, don't we? We struggle. Um, it's just so black and white in a culture of gray. John is saying, if someone denies who Jesus is and what he's done, they do not know the Father. And verse 25, they do not have eternal life. They do not have eternal life. The stakes could not be higher when we're talking about the identity and the work of the Lord Jesus. The stakes couldn't be higher. And so John wants to say, be alert. There are threats to your spiritual health out there. There are threats to your spiritual health out there. Antichrists are among us. But remember, uh, if you've been here with us these past few weeks, you'll know that John's not just ranting. He's actually writing in order to reassure uh, these um, worried well Christians. And so secondly, he wants to say, be assured, be assured, his anointing teaches you, his anointing teaches you, yes, there are spiritual threats out there, but you've been inoculated. You don't have to worry about them. It is not inevitable that you will be conned and deceived. If you'll let me push the medical analogy, maybe to almost breaking point, John is saying, look, there are two tablets, two 
components of preventative medicine that if you take them and receive them, you'll never be conned. You'll never be conned. You'll never be deceived. What are they? Well, they're there in verse 20. But, 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 you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Two tablets that if you take them, you will not be deceived. You will not be, uh, the, the, the threat to your spiritual health will never materialize. First, an anointing, and second, the truth. Okay, let's take these in turn. Uh, these are going to require a little bit of uh, explaining. Uh, the anointing. Uh, first, this language of anointing, I think it's been really confused and misunderstood in Christian circles. I still remember very clearly, uh, I was with a friend of mine and he was giving a sermon, young guy preaching one of his first five sermons ever. And he got up and he, he did a good job. Uh, and I remember chatting to him at the end and we were interrupted by a senior saint who wanted to encourage him and said, you had a real anointing from the Lord this morning, brother. That was great. Okay. And I think what he meant by that is you're clearly, you clearly have a gift uh, and you clearly did a good job, okay? But that's not what John is talking about here. That's not what John is talking about. The anointing that John is talking about is not something just for the gifted or for the, the, the spiritual elite in some way. Notice that this anointing and the truth is something that, verse 20, all of you have. All of you have the anointing. All of you who are Christians have access to the truth. All of you have both of those things. And so what is John talking about? Well, I think a verse that helps us an enormous amount to explain what was understood by this language of an anointing by the, by the first century church uh, is found in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. This is Paul writing to another first century church. And Paul says, Now it is, from God, now it is God who makes both, of, both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what was to come. What's in the anointing then? To be anointed by God is to receive the Holy Spirit. To be anointed by God is to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, And this is something that absolutely every Christian has the moment they become a Christian. All of us have that. And so according to the Christian, or according to, to the New Testament, um, being a Christian is a bit like taking a, a tandem skydive. I don't know if any of you have done that. Um, looks quite a terrifying thing to do, but nevertheless, you, there's no need to panic if you're doing a tandem skydive. Uh, while it's scary on the fall, you are literally strapped to the expert who knows the right moment to pull the cord and what to do if something goes wrong. And so to be a Christian, uh, in a sense, is a bit like that. We have someone with us who is the expert, who is the expert, and who will get us safely home. Uh, A couple of years ago, we looked at this whole topic when we looked at our little series, The Helper, uh, as we considered the work and the person uh, of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is not just someone who is received by the, the gifted or the spiritual elite, but every single Christian, the moment they put their trust in the Lord Jesus, has the Holy Spirit come to dwell uh, within them. Uh, what does the Holy Spirit then do to prevent you from being deceived? Well, look at verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains remain in you. Uh, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you remain in him. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit teaches us. He guides us into the truth. He guides us into the truth. He is with us to ensure and help us not to be deceived. And that then invites the crucial question, how on earth does he do that? How does he do that? Uh, does he give us direct revelation? Are we to expect the Holy Spirit to speak audibly in our ear? Are we to expect dreams and visions as the Holy Spirit guides us and directs us into the truth? Well, that's where the second tablet is so crucial. First, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The second is the truth. Verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. What is the truth? He explains that in verse 24. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And if it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. Well, as he uses this language of the beginning, uh, what you've heard from the beginning, uh, clearly that's pointing back again to verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, where we have the teaching of the apostles their testimony, unique testimony, their interpretation, their instructions, which have been preserved for us in the pages of the New Testament. And so what is John saying? John is saying that, the, that you have all the, medicine, the preventative medicine you need to avoid being deceived as you have the Spirit of God teaching you the Word of God. The Spirit of God teaching you the Word of God. We have the expert teacher to open up our minds, to help us understand what was written down, uh, to help us convince us of its truth, and to help us understand how to put it into practice. And so you will often hear people say, you'll often hear people say, when you talk about the, the exclusive claims or the ethics of the Bible, you'll often hear people say, yeah, but that was back then. That was back then. They were a bit backward back then. God has been revealing more things to us, and we've moved on now from all that. We've moved on. We don't need all that. We now know more. We're more spiritual. Uh, we need to leave those uh, medieval thoughts behind. Paul was probably wrong. John was probably wrong anyway. At this point, John wants to come back and say, no, 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 no. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to keep us on the right track. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being in a class, uh, perhaps uh, at, maybe at school, more than likely at college or university. 
you know you've got the expert in the field when your teacher says, just pull out your textbook to page 90 and their name is on the cover. Have you ever had that experience where they, they teach from the textbook that they've written and it's the definitive work on the subject? What We have something very similar in the Christian life. We have the Holy Spirit who is the expert who teaches us from the book that he has written and he has not changed his mind. He's not changed his mind. And so we have everything we need to be fully mature, fully spiritual Christians and to make our way wisely uh, in this world. John says you've all, you've had, you've all you need from the beginning uh, to be a fully mature Christian as the word of God is applied to you by the Spirit of God. So I just want to finish with this final appeal. There are, look, be alert. There are threats to your spiritual health out there. Don't be naive. Don't be conned. Don't be gullible. We're going to come back to this idea again and again. You need a good functional category for false teachers. Just because someone stands up with a Bible doesn't mean they're always teaching you the truth. We need to not be naive. Be alert. But then also, don't be, don't be panicked. Be reassured. You've got the anointing, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Spirit of God to teach you and apply in your life the Word of God. And so I just want to finish with the appeal that John makes. He finishes with this appeal. And the appeal is, is repeated in, in verse 24 uh, and verse 27. But let me read verse 24 to you again. As for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains or abides. I know that's a slightly more old-fashioned word, but uh, abides in you. If it does, you will also remain or abide in the Son and in the Father. John's effectively saying, stick with what you've got. You've got everything you need. Stick with what you've got. Stick with what you have had from the beginning. The testimony of the apostles. Stick with the word of God. Read it. Study it. Meditate upon it. Trust it. Obey it. But John also doesn't want to give us the impression that actually being a Christian is just all about your brain and filling it with with facts and knowledge and trivia. No, it's more than that. Christianity is not just a curriculum for you to learn. No, it's a relationship for you to enjoy because as you understand and listen to and apply the word of God, you will also abide in the Son. And again, John is picking up the language of the Lord Jesus uh, that he used in passages like John 15 when he called for his disciples to abide in him. Now, what does that mean? What's that language of abide or remain mean? Well, Jesus was saying that it's possible, and indeed it should happen, that Christians grow in their relationship with God, grow in their relationship with him. How does that happen? Again, we don't have time to look at John 15 now. If you want to, we looked at it last year. It's probably still on the website. You could check it out where we looked at that passage in some detail. But Jesus said, if you want to grow in your relationship with me, what do you need to do? You need to, number one, heed my word. 
because the Bible is never just information for you to understand. It's, a, it's like a love letter for you to read, for you to grow in your knowledge of the writer. Heed my word. Pray in my name. Communicate back with me. And then love my people. Love my people. And as we do those things, we will abide in the Lord Jesus and grow in our relationship with him. And so John says, number one, there, look, there are, be, be alert. There are spirit, threats to your spiritual health out there. Be careful. Don't be gullible. Don't be deceived. But then be assured. Be assured. You have everything you need. You have the word of God applied into your mind and heart by the spirit of God. And he will keep you safe. And he will keep you seeing clearly that the Lord Jesus is the son, the eternal son of God who became a man. And you'll keep seeing that he's the savior that you will always need. Let me pray.